This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Law enforcement benefits when they seize property associated with alleged crimes, like cars, jewelry, even homes. When they're sold, some of the proceeds go to agencies which have used the money to fight drug gangs and human traffickers. But the Justice Department announced it would suspend this controversial program. Critics have called it legalized robbery by law enforcement. Without these funds, though, there's concern crime could rise in Colorado. On the phone is Larimer County Sheriff Justin Smith, a leader with the State County Sheriff's Association. And Sheriff, welcome to the program. Good morning, Ryan. Thank you. Under this uh, program, the federal government shares funds with local agencies that are part of criminal investigations. This is potentially millions of dollars a year to agencies across the state. Can you give us just a few examples of what agencies have used the money for? You know, Ryan, it really runs the gamut. Um, A lot of them that are involved with task forces will use it to actually... um, um, pay the salaries of those working major drug cases, uh, individuals they wouldn't otherwise be able to, to hire and, and participate. Other examples, communications equipment, sometimes community policing projects get paid for with those, and things like the uh, uh, armored vehicle that you see, like in Colorado Springs and the Planned Parenthood shooting, uh, that type of equipment that typically local agencies can't afford on their own, can be bought with those types of funds. You mentioned the task forces. These are task forces that fight drug crime, and it's often many different agencies that have pooled their resources together to do so. Has your department been able to buy any equipment it otherwise would not have had? Yes, um, we had uh, some major case several years ago, and it actually takes typically several years for these uh, seizures to work their way through the process. And and we've utilized it to pay for things like training classes. Uh, We were able to buy an armored vehicle uh, for for officer protection and citizen protection. Uh, It's really run the gamut of of different things, a canine training building for our police canines, some fencing that we put up for a seizure lot to protect uh, uh, vehicles that have been seized as evidence, things like that. There are many examples that have raised public scrutiny of this program, though. Um, a district attorney's office in Massachusetts spent forfeiture money on a Zamboni, uh, you know, the ice rink machine, calling it part of a drug diversion program. In Milwaukee, the county sheriff spent $25,000 of forfeiture funds on customer service training from the Disney Institute. And I want to add that these were legal purchases. Uh, There aren't a lot of restrictions on how the the money is spent. What do you say to critics who point out that the program could be easily abused? Well, I I don't agree when you look at the overall process that it's easily abused, Ryan. Are there abuses in the system? I certainly have heard of a few that could be concerning. I would put that back on the federal government who oversees uh, the equitable sharing because there's a very strict process we go through working with uh, individuals from the federal government. And I would guess that some of these are ones that were caught, and if they're found to be out of compliance, those agencies then have to return those those funds back if they weren't approved. So, you know, there's abuses in any, any system that are out there. Uh, what was concerning was that this move, you know, came without any warning to local law enforcement. And the reality is it does nothing to stop or slow down or change how the federal government is doing forfeitures. It merely says that the 
the programs where local agencies have worked with them, essentially they're saying, thanks for the help, we're taking your money. And it isn't changing the system, it's just allowing uh, Congress to reallocate those monies or the uh, Department of Justice to reallocate to their priorities instead of local priorities. So you're saying that this Department of Justice announcement about the asset forfeiture program came with little or no notice. We're going to talk about what effect you think that might have in just a bit, but the program has been embattled, uh, to say the least. Congress made cuts in the 2015 budget, then again in the 2016 budget. Critics call this policing for profit. And uh, the Justice Department, as I said, which administers the program, said it was just impossible to keep it running, at least for now. What do you think it will mean for agencies across the the state? Well, what it will do is it will uh, create, I think, great harm in the interaction between federal and local law enforcement agencies, uh, issues of things like human trafficking, exploit, sexual exploitation of children when you're dealing with Internet-based crimes, and certainly the drug cartels. The federal government is effective as kind of the overwatch of as cases move from one state to another. It's, it's almost impossible for a local agency to follow those crimes. And more and more crime is interstate and international these days. And we have to have the federal government and federal law enforcement assisting in those cases. But at the same time, if you get outside of a major metropolitan area, the FBI, the DEA, those agencies don't have law enforcement officers in those local communities that can work the cases. So we've been very effective at working together on those cases and the ability when those assets were, and I make sure people know these all go through a civil court process. Law enforcement doesn't have the authority to seize and hold on their own. It goes through a civil process. But when that happens, that was able to offset the expenses because local agencies uh, typically are pretty strapped these days and don't have the assets or you know the more personnel to put towards these cases if they don't get some offsetting uh, you know uh, forfeitures out of it. So do you so do you think do... that that crimes like human trafficking and drug crime would rise as a result of these funds being taken away from local agencies? I I do. I can see that as a, a very foreseeable outcome because there won't be much enforcement on them. The enforcement will reel back because local law enforcement will essentially be doing a lot of legwork on cases that go outside their jurisdiction and you know they don't they don't have the the people to do that typically these funds oft, oftentimes offset those costs so All right, without you, that these cases just won't be investigated at the level they were before the examples you cited of how forfeiture funds have been used uh, focused a lot on equipment so you you said you know armored vehicles for instance and canine training mm-hmm. but what you're saying there is that a fair bit of the money also paid for personnel man hours if you will to fight some of these crimes Yes, it's usually a split between different equipment and personnel. Got it. Um, agencies that are involved full time in when I say a task force, those task forces are joint local and federal task forces, right. and so that was where the the monies came to to pay personnel to to get involved. Are you um, so that's where you're going to see a big downturn. Are you potentially crying wolf? I mean, there might be those who say, well, you have an interest in making it sound as as ominous as possible so that this funding is restored in some regard. You know, I, I would say certainly there's critics who, who believe nothing that we have to say. We, you know, we deal with that. That's a reality. I think the same accusation can be made 
um, against those who are, who are crying wolf of that there is no um, court process, that police you know, can just go in and seize assets. Everything follows the same rules of, of court procedure as any other civil case, not a criminal case that follows the, the civil one. So um, what we have asked is if there was a desire to review those processes and assure that citizens' rights are, are adequately protected, that Congress go that direction. That's why this was really a backdoor move, and I found it interesting that yeah, I've never known the federal government to move quickly on hardly anything, and yet within a couple of days of a budget being passed, we got an announcement from uh, the Attorney General or from the Department of Justice saying this program was suspended. It leaves me suspicious that there was some planning in the works, a typical backdoor um, things that go on in Congress to make this happen, to take those funds and immediately uh, reallocate them. Again, this does nothing to change seizures. This simply says the federal government is taking the monies that they work with local government on criminal cases. I want to add an interesting detail. In 2014, for the first time ever, law enforcement officers using asset forfeiture laws took more property from American citizens than burglars did. This is according to a story in the Washington Post. We also received a statement from the Institute for Justice, a Virginia-based nonprofit that advocates for private property rights. And they said, quote, law enforcement revealed that its true interest in forfeiture is policing for profit, not public safety. You've talked about the fact that there's a court process in place for asset forfeiture. But, uh, you know, assets can be removed even if the crime is merely alleged. There doesn't have to be a conviction. <clears throat> what, do, what do you say to that? Well, first, I, both those statements are, have nothing to back them up. You know, I don't hear any statistics or data. Um, and so I don't put any weight to the statement of, of either of those organizations. Anybody can say what they want. Well, I don't think the Washington the reality- Post probably says anything it wants. Well, I, I, don't, I don't hear any statistics to back that up. To me, that's a, a very uh, ridiculous statement that more was seized through those processes than was taken by burglars. You know, let's, you know if, you're, if they're going to talk um, about data and studies, I don't hear anything behind it. So uh, I hear a lot of things out there that are, are greatly inflated of uh, those who are against this process. But the reality is... These are all gone through the civil process, and if there's a desire to push these beyond, you know, hold on them until a criminal conviction, that's certainly a discussion that can be had. Some states require that under under the state process, but there was no uh, valid attempt at the federal government to make a change in it. This doesn't change that at all. All it says is that if local agencies work with the federal government on cases, the federal government will seize those assets and use them as the Department of Justice decides, not as local communities decide might be most reasonable. The Justice Department has said essentially that it will do what it can to salvage the program. Meanwhile, I want to point out that Colorado law does allow for seizures, and uh, experts we talk to don't say they think that law is as widely used Because it has a higher standard, it does require a criminal conviction for a property seizure. Very briefly, will we see the state law used more now, do you think? You know, that's certainly a possibility. Um, The challenge you have is the cases where you're working with uh, uh, many agencies and the federal government, you don't have that 
that possibility. And that's where you typically see these seizures is in the major cases where you're dealing with criminal enterprises where they're making hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars with equipment bought with those illegal proceeds. So what it does is it, it really limits the ability of local governments to work with the federal government on those. Um, you know, the, the local seizure process has continued to be used, and that goes to a 50-50 split. 50% has to go essentially to human services. 50% goes back to a city or county general fund that they can allocate, you know, back to law enforcement agencies. So um, I think it will continue to be used, but it's it, what it does, again, is it, it, this really cripples the the ability of local law enforcement to work with the federal government. And when they do, it simply means that somebody in Washington will make the decision uh, that the same seizures are going to occur. That's it Justin just Smith. That the federal government's going to make the decision. Justin Smith is Larimer County Sheriff. We'll be right back with the National Park Poster Project. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Ansel Adams was a role model for Robert Decker. Decker studied under the famous landscape photographer in Yosemite when he was 19. Decker lives in Netherlands, and his new endeavor is called the National Park Poster Project. It is a collection of retro-style posters for each of the 59 national parks. He hopes to finish by the end of the summer to commemorate the National Park Service's 100th anniversary. And uh, Rob, welcome to the program. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about this poster project in a bit. Uh, The images look like something out of the 1930s. But I want to hear more about your time studying under Ansel Adams in Yosemite for a summer. What was the most important thing he taught you? You know, he um, had a process that he called visualization which was really about visualizing the end product before you even took the, 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 the picture. Before you even looked in the viewfinder? Yeah. He, uh, he knew what he wanted the end result to be. Uh, and, of course, you know, he worked on and developed the zone system, which was a way of calculating the exposure. And he didn't have the luxury that we have with digital cameras. He would lug a big 4 by 5 camera up the mountain and only have maybe four plates. And so he had to be very careful about uh, you know, the, those exposures that he did take. Exactly. He had to be, in a way, economical with the film that he had. But even in the digital world, do you find yourself doing that kind of visualizing? Absolutely. And even with this project, uh, some of the parks I've been to that I've gone back uh, to photograph them in color because I, in the early days, I shot a lot of black and white. As did Ansel uh, Adams. Right, absolutely. And so, um, you know, it's uh, having having that picture in your in your mind, in your head about what you want to, want to take. And then, you know, if you're lucky enough to capture it uh, with the correct lighting and, you know, other factors. Do you find yourself um, making the frame up with your fingers? I mean, doing that kind of a thing? You know, I, I don't with with a zoom lens. You can you know you can achieve that same kind of result, uh, but you, know, you you do a lot of you know composition before you snap the shutter. Yeah, before that click. How starstruck were you when you met Ansel Adams? Uh, it, it was it was uh, kind of intimidating at first. Absolutely, um, you know, it was he, he was already he was certainly an icon at that time, uh, and and something somebody I even at that age uh, you know really idolized. Was he nice? He was nice. He was, uh, 
he I think he was very serious about his work, but I don't think he took himself too seriously. Um, at the at the beginning of the uh, uh, first session with him, he he had an you know, audience who was just you know on pins and needles, and he just cracked a joke and brought the house down. <laughs> Do you remember the joke? Actually, it was uh, it was summer in Yosemite, and okay. he looked out over the audience and he said, "I don't know whose fault it is, but." We have mosquitoes. It was, a, it was a great icebreaker. <laughs> you had been photographing national parks, I think, nearly a decade before you met Ansel Adams. Is that right? Yeah, I uh, started out at a very early age. I had a little, uh, you know, brownie style camera. You look down through and a focus knob and shooting one twenty roll film, and um, and then uh, migrated to a uh, the Kodak Instamatic cameras uh, in. The, the late 60s, early 70s. I want to talk more about this National Park Poster Project. Um, I understand the idea for it, to document each of the national parks in the system and then create a poster around it. The, the idea for this started at a wedding. Is that right? Well, uh, it was my daughter's wedding. When she uh, decided to get married, she found a vintage dress and we kind of got to this retro style. And uh, I took a lot of pictures around uh, Boulder and Colorado and then uh, the Save the Date card and the table cards at the reception were all done in this in this style and uh, got a lot of positive feedback. Uh, and a lot of people, including my wife, said, you should maybe do something more with this. And when you say retro style, it's really evocative of like that that era of the works project administration, a very particular font and... Um, even coloring, I think. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I've tried to make my posters a little more contemporary, uh, a little more colorful. And, uh, you know, I think that's maybe the differentiator. You say that you want to capture the iconic shot of these parks. Yeah, and it and it's difficult, especially some parks are, are quite large and have very you know diverse uh, areas to them. Uh, Olympic National Park has rainforests, it has the coast, it has high mountain peaks. So some of them are pretty difficult. The Yosemite National Park uh, poster you know, is, is that kind of iconic shot. Uh, it's called the tunnel view. You come out of the tunnel and you look down the valley. And that was almost kind of easy. Well, I think of the largest park in the system, which is in Alaska, and it's 13.2 million acres. And then on the other end... I had to look this up. The smallest <laughs> national park. Do you know what it what it is? Oh, you're going to catch me on it's that one. Thaddeus Kuchusko in Pennsylvania. <laughs> 0.02 acres. <laughs> That's the smallest. Right. And, you know, these are very different challenges. Sure, sure. So at like uh, Wrangell St. Elias in, in Alaska, uh, which is the one that's, you know, some 13 million acres, what is the iconic shot? You know, that's a, a real good question, and I haven't been there. So, um, you know, part of part of my experience is, is kind of exploring these parks and, you know, that awestruck moment that, you know, this is amazing. This is the shot. And trusting your guts. Yeah, yeah. You know, and some again, some of the parks are, are, are a little more obvious. So you clearly have not been to all the parks yet, and that right. means that the clock is ticking for it your is. travels. Um, do you think you're going to make your deadline? You know, I'm still hopeful. Um, I think the the uh, the parks in the continental United States are quite doable. Uh, getting to Alaska and being able i've I've been to I've been to one. I've been to Glacier Bay, 
but seven more parks and they are big and they are spread out uh, is going to be a real challenge. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with Netherland photographer Robert Decker. His new project is called the National Park Poster Project, and he hopes by the end of the summer to commemorate the Park Service's 100th anniversary to document all 59 national parks in the country and then to create a retro-style poster for each of them. You've had some adventures so far in... Uh, the trips you have taken. I understand in the Badlands in South Dakota, you and your son had a an unforgettable experience. We did. We uh, kind of came in through the the southern entrance, which is not the entrance I think that most people uh, travel through the park, and a rough dirt road and came around a big sweeping turn, and there was this huge herd of buffalo, maybe at least 100, if not 200. Wow. And uh, relatively close. And uh, we we stopped and got the cameras out and photographed them for a while. People, few people uh, came and went during that time. And we kind of just hung out for quite a while. And you could hear them, hear them eating and grazing and snorting and uh, it was it was spectacular. But I imagine that, you know, they get spooked or something. Or, or they decide to move in your direction, and that could get iffy. I suppose they were they were moving uh, across uh, our view. They weren't uh, coming at us, and we were, I think, at a safe enough distance where we didn't really feel uh, yeah, threatened at all. You are off to Channel Islands National Park. This is off the California coast, and it's one you've never been to. Correct. Yeah, and you know, again, that's part of the uh, the. The, the fun, I guess, of, of, of the project is the anticipation of, of going someplace new um, and, and not necessarily knowing what that iconic shot is or will be. And uh, so I'm, I'm excited about that, that opportunity to, to go to a, a new park. I want to bring up Ansel Adams again. Uh, he began working for the U.S. Department of the Interior in the early 1940s, and he shot large format photographs of national parks and other well-known American landscapes. Right. Uh, decades later, the National Park Service is hiring the same position. The salary range is um, listed from around 60000 to nearly 100000 a year. I wonder if you applied. I, I did not apply. I did. I did see the uh, the job listing, but um, I was uh, certainly the, the first thought was those would be pretty big shoes to step into. No doubt. <laughs> and what you don't feel your feet are big enough for the shoes? Well, you know, it's um, it would it would certainly be a, a challenging uh, position to photograph those places and and come up with those kinds of results. Um, the, the the job was based out of Washington D.C. and required a lot of travel, so I think it was uh, not, not something right that would be perfect for me, right? <laughs> well, what's your goal with this in documenting every national park? You know, I I, th- I think a couple of things. Um, you know, in the in the past uh, many years, the uh, Park Service budget has been cut. It's been affected by government shutdowns. These are amazing places, and uh, even though. Uh, visitorship is up in many cases, that um, there are a lot of people who aren't experiencing the parks, uh, particularly younger people. And I think it's really important that we get that next generation of National Park supporters to the parks and get them interested in in certainly what, what I'm interested in. 
Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Photographer Rob Decker lives in Netherland. His National Park Poster Project is a collection of retro-inspired posters for each of the country's 59 national parks. You can see how some of them have turned out. There are some at cprnews.org. Coming up, turning Hunter S. Thompson's Colorado home into a private museum or retreat. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. 2016 is the year Anita Thompson hopes to open her home near Aspen to the public. She is the widow of gonzo journalist Hunter S. Thompson. The property known as Owl Farm is where he hammered on his typewriter, and it's where he got hammered. It's also where, in February of 2005, he committed suicide. The property in Woody Creek, Colorado, has largely been frozen in time since then. Anita Thompson thinks it might make a nice writer's retreat. Last June, she talked to us about the man behind Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and innumerable other books and articles in which Hunter Thompson reshaped journalism by putting himself at the center of the story. Anita, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me, Ryan. I love your show. Oh, that's very kind. Um, You live at Owl Farm, and I wonder if opening a museum there would mean leaving your home. Well, that's a good question, and many people have asked that. And Owl Farm is my home, and it, it is my only home, so I certainly would not leave Owl Farm. I don't ever intend to leave Owl Farm. It's uh, one of those places on earth that over time, it's not that it belongs to me, it's that I belong to the land. There are magnificent red cliffs on the property, and there are 40 acres of untouched, beautiful wild that um, my goal is to protect and to preserve from development and to make the home a private museum. So I will not be moving, but I will be making room for guests to come on a, an appointment basis only so they can enjoy and experience the way Hunter lived. Hmm. I wonder if the idea for opening this museum came from people coming by your home and asking if they can come in. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good question. I do have a problem with trespassers. and uh, 90% are... of the trespassers are well-intentioned. They just want to, quote, pay their respects. Uh, When Hunter was alive, he was very unwelcoming to them because it was his private space. Uh, But after he died, I think people just thought it was logical or they read my books and thought that because we think alike and we all love Hunter that we would just sit down and have a beer and talk about his life. So, no, uh, I... It's not that I'm trying to appease uh, trespassers. It's that over the years, I I realized how much people love Hunter. And as the years go by, the conversation is drifting, thank goodness. We're guiding it, all of us, away from his lifestyle. So it's not focused on his lifestyle, but it's more focused on his work and the, what he contributed as a journalist and as an artist. So now that I feel comfortable with that, I feel like I can open his home now for people to see his lifestyle and that, yes, he did live uh, with taking so many substances and and having the time of his life every single day. Every day was a new day. He lived like you know, he was a teenage girl trapped in the body of an elderly dope fiend. And when you see his home, you get a sense of that. And that is the reason I decided to um, turn it into a museum, not to appease any trespassers. 
He was famous for sleeping in, rising in the mm-hmm. afternoon to begin his day with a, a drink, coffee, a cigarette, and working then through the night, often past sunrise. Yes, uh, that that's all true. That's that's not just rumor. And, and yes, what was it yes. like to, you know, working for him? Because that's how your yes. relationship started, right? Yes, I was his assistant first. That we met because I had a question about football, and a mutual friend said, "I have someone to introduce you to, and he can explain to you what it is about football that bonds men over a lifetime when sometimes they have nothing else in common." So I uh, was invited over for a football game. I immediately was attracted to Hunter. I didn't know that he was staying up all night yet. I didn't know about his um, schedule. But when I started to work for him, uh, I was on my way back to UCLA. He asked me to stay and be his assistant for his second letters book. And I agreed because I was in love with him, frankly. And um, switching over to that was actually very refreshing at around 10 o'clock at night is when we would start to um, say goodbye to guests or show them that it's time that Hunter needed to start working. And suddenly it was much more quiet in the world and the phone stopped ringing and Hunter became more creative and ready to write. It was just, it was his circadian rhythm to be like an owl. He worked and lived and was happiest at night. And the sun would come up around, you know, six or seven, depending on the time of year. And that was his cue to go to bed. And it seemed perfectly normal to me. And like the outside world, it was a bit of a farce. And then this was the normal way to live. <laughs> and it is much more quiet and it's easier to concentrate at night. Was there a moment when you realize, I- I'm, in, I'm in love with this man and I'm, I don't want to be just his assistant? Well, it was... He was a Southern gentleman and certainly an alpha male. So he was the one to to initiate a relationship. And at, for, when I first met him, I was a little hesitant because of our age difference. He was older than my father, but I just couldn't get him out of my mind. And when I started working for him and really getting to know him, there was nothing that would uh, keep me away from him. And, and he felt the same about me, he said, and he just wanted me to be with him all the time. And we were also working together. So it was working. Probably if it wasn't working as a working relationship, I don't know if he would have felt the same. But Hmm. we just worked really well together. You brought with you, uh, I think, a letter in which he makes, is it a marriage proposal or or just a proposal? Yes, yes. Um, Hunter was very proud of this letter. Getting married was not something I wanted to do just because I didn't want the courting to end and there were some (laughs) technical issues and it was just working the way we were doing it. We were trying to have children and living together. That wasn't the issue, but having that paperwork done worried me a little. But then he wrote a letter one day after a few various attempts and it was so beautiful. It brought me to my knees and of course I said yes. He loved this letter. Go ahead. Okay. And what's the date? The date was March 21st, 2003. I was stuck in Fort Collins. I don't know if you remember in 2003, we had a state of emergency blizzard and both sides of the highway were closed. And he wrote me this letter while I was in Fort Collins. I wasn't home yet. I was my I'm I'm born and raised in Fort Collins. And Anita, just before you read this, let me say that he'll uh, reference the fact that you two collaborated on a piece called The Lion and the Cadillac, which was part of his memoir called Kingdom of Fear. So this is Hunter. Indeed, so I am Lono, as always, and I will always be with you, always. Never doubt it, never be afraid of anything, no matter how weird it might seem to be at the time. 
We are far beyond seams, and we have no fear. Only moments of confusion now and then. Ho, ho. That will always be our story, our first true ABHST creation. We did it all by ourselves and under some kind of intense deadline pressure in less than two hours' time from start to finish. From my first desperate flash of a totally fictitious idea to your elegant finished pages, it was surely the easiest and fastest and purest piece of high, high gibberish we had ever written together until then. The Lion and the Cadillac. Stand back and bow down to the morning star. Mahalo. And... Yeah, that's, uh, it goes on. I, I just love that letter, and I, it makes me very happy to be reading Hunter's work right now. Well, it's a capturing of how you guys work together and uh, that you were a team, which must have felt yes. really good. He was certain. yes, yeah, I, he was my teacher. I learned from him every day. He was the writer. I'm not so much the writer in the family. I attempt, and I do the best I can, and I work really hard to make good pieces come out of my, of my type, I'm not my typewriter, my computer. But Hunter was certainly the, the master and I was uh, privileged to learn from him and just be there to have fun with him while he was writing. What does Lono mean? Okay, Lono is a, a Hawaiian god and he wrote extensively about Lono in The Curse of Lono and uh, the Curse of Lono, which was a story in a book he wrote with Ralph Steadman in Hawaii in, in the 80s. And it's a, one of his favorite books. It's a brilliant story about uh, the god Lono and Pele and the destruction and recovery and coming back from craziness and all enjoying the ride the entire time. Ralph Steadman, his longtime uh, illustrator and and, uh, and collaborator. And, and then he says A-B-H-S-T. What, what does that mean? Anita Baymuk slash Hunter S. Thompson. Oh, it's your uh, initials. <laughs> Baymuk was my yeah. Baymuk was my maiden name. Yes. Um, it's so funny. Like he he probably drew so many parallels that it could be uh, both um, really uh, amazing and maybe a bit exhausting <laughs> to talk with him or to, or to read his writing. Sometimes, and, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. He was a master at code. Some people crack some of his codes in his columns. He's might ostensibly he could be talking about basketball and some people have already recognized or have figured out what he was really talking about. Sometimes it's obvious and sometimes it's not. Huh. And sometimes it's pure high gibberish that it is simply fun, like playing with the elements. And that was sometimes Hunter at his finest when he was simply enjoying life and showing it on the page. Um, what did your parents think of this union? Well, they were not happy at first. My mother only, like many people, only understood or only heard about the crazy lifestyle drug-induced craziness. And she was, of of course, very concerned, as was the rest of my family. And they did at some point ask me to choose between my family and Hunter. And I said, I will miss you guys very much. (gasps) And... Uh, and that was fair. I, I completely understood why. Uh, my mom loves me. She's a very strong Polish immigrant, hard worker, brilliant, intelligent woman, uh, but didn't understand Hunter and was worried about me. But I was 25 years old, and I was 27 when I moved in with Hunter. But uh, over time, within a year or two, she understood that Hunter really was good for me, and 
the growth that I was experiencing being with Hunter was uh, was real, and she finally appreciated that and welcomed Hunter with open arms. We are listening back to a conversation with Anita Thompson, widow of writer Hunter S. Thompson. She'd like to open their home in the Roaring Fork Valley to the public, perhaps as a writer's retreat. When we come back, we'll hear about his unusual idea of courting her. Let's just say it involved an explosion. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's been more than a decade since the gonzo journalist Hunter S. Thompson took his own life at his home in Woody Creek near Aspen. Now his widow, Anita Thompson, who still lives on Owl Farm, wants to open the property to visitors. We're listening back to an interview with her about their life together. What was the hardest thing about being married to him? He could be very temperamental, anxious, crazy, uh, hard to deal with. Which, you know, it can be, it was certainly exhausting, and it was, that was part of the deal. You know, you buy the ticket, you take the ride. That was the same with living and falling in love with Hunter. And looking back on I would have it no other, and I wouldn't have it any other way. He, it just made everything that much more interesting. He was known for a lot of um, stunts, I guess you could say. There's video of him, for instance, meeting Rolling Stones guitarist Keith Richards for an interview. Mm-hmm. And yes. he, he plays the sounds of his squealing pig at the door, yes. I guess to yes. make Richards think that there was a pig about to be slaughtered or be, being slaughtered. <laughs> yes. um, and when journalists and TV hosts wanted to interview Hunter, he wouldn't meet them at a studio, but take them shooting uh, there sometimes yes. in, in Woody Creek. Um, in, 19, yes. in 1970, he ran for sheriff of Pitkin County mm-hmm. under the freak power ticket promising to rid the city of streets and replace them with grass. And by grass, he meant marijuana. Um, he lost that election. It's, you know, it's like each story is more sensational than the last. Um, what is the craziest thing you recall? The craziest thing? That is a very good question. I could tell you stories that will knock your socks off, but I don't know if I want to incriminate myself. <laughs> but but this story really is the way he courted me in the beginning was he had me come out with a big uh, vase full of long stem red roses. And he had a shotgun, which I, you know, he had taught me how to shoot the shotgun, a 12 gauge nickel plated, beautiful, beautiful piece of um, machinery. And he set up some things. I didn't know what he was doing. He had his back to me and I was trying to look. I was peeking around his corner and he'd shove me away and he said no this is for you it, it'll ruin it if you see what I'm doing and then he sat on the uh, shooting table and uh, then I could see what he had done it was a propane tank uh, like those Coleman tanks and it was covered with uh, duct tape or nitroglycerin targets or some sort of they look like explosives I, I, didn't, I, don't, I didn't know what they were at the time but it was terrifying and he said stay there and film this <laughs> this is for you <laughs> this is all for you I said I don't want this I want to go in the house and get out of here that thing looks dangerous and we're going to die and he said hold on <laughs> just don't move so I cringed up against the side of the house in a corner. I don't know why I thought I felt safer there. But he locked and loaded and penetrated the nitroglycerin targets into the Coleman tank. And it exploded the entire Colorado sky for about two seconds. But it seemed like an eternity. And I was terrified. And then a moment later, I was completely, it was a complete exhilaration. It was magnificent. 
and I don't, I don't think I could enjoy it with anyone else. But having that experience with Hunter was so weird and so intense and blew my mind. It certainly opened my heart. <laughs> <laughs> Did he write a lot in his final years? Yes, actually. Uh, when I met him, he hadn't written much in the previous 15 years. I knew that he was a writer, but I didn't really know what that meant. I had never spent time with professional writers. So when I was started living with Hunter, and I said, aren't you, so you're a writer, we know this much, why don't you write? So he laughed, and he pulled some newspapers and a book and some thing, I think like a scarfs off of a, his typewriter that had been sitting in front of him the whole time. He pulled it forward, and he started writing. And he said, that's your job, is to, get, is to make sure I'm writing. Huh. And so I, I said, okay, whatever that is. I didn't know what it was, so I didn't have any inhibitions to do whatever it took to get Hunter to write. That was what he loved. It's what he did naturally. He just needed a little bit of nudging. So I came at a time when right before George W. Bush was elected. So the convergence of me, who it was my job to get him to write, to at least remind him incessantly, <laughs> coaxing, <laughs> cooing, kissing, whatever, and uh, sometimes threatening. And also he had the desire to write because George W. Bush was uh, threatening the security and integrity of our country. So those things together... Sort of made a perfect storm for him to write more in the last five years of his life than he did in the previous 15 combined. He was very happy with his work. He loved his sports column on ESPN.com. But he looked at it with the same lens that he looked at writing for Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone was not, he didn't write for it because he thought it was a cool magazine. He was writing for Rolling Stone because he knew he could get a, a group of people who love music and politicize them and get them to control their environment and remind them that they have the power to do that. And when he started writing for ESPN, it was the same thing. He could talk to a group of sports lovers, just like himself, and remind them that they have the power to control their own environment. And that indeed is not a, their ability, but this, their, their job. It's our jobs to participate in this commun our communities and our world. And that was his way of empowering people and also his way of having fun. He liked to uh, remind people that uh, he could not go on those 18-hour stints of writing at his age. He was in his 60s. He said, I can't do 18 hours at a time anymore, but I'd love to write and I'm just as focused as I was when I was younger. They're just not this long. So they don't have to be. That's your job, the next generation. <laughs> so do you picture the museum as also an archive of what I imagine? Yes. You must be swimming in papers there. Yes. So there were about 800 boxes, majority of which are in an actual archive and unfortunately are still closed to scholars. I hope to change that, but I've, I don't have a lot of authority there. Uh, but I do have, as long as I'm alive, Owl Farm is my home, thanks to Hunter. He arranged all this even before we were married. I didn't know any of this until after he passed away. Oh. But it is, so what I can do with Owl Farm, yes, the, the pieces that I do have and the things that he left me, the writing, the whole environment is all as Hunter left it. And, of course, I've been continuing to live there. I still cook in the kitchen and I still live my life um, but yes, it will be quite a bit of archival material, photographs, music, video. I have hundreds of hours of videos. And just seeing Owl Farm and also the outside, how much he loved the space. Uh, Anita, is it a bit sad, though, to live in what might feel like a museum? Um, yes, yes. Thanks for asking, Ryan. Yes, so, so 
uh, my family was worried about me, rightfully so. After the first few years, I left everything the way it was with no intention of a museum necessarily, just it, because it simply brought comfort, and I missed Hunter so much. But recently, and over the last few years, I still miss Hunter, but he's safe in my heart. He's, you know, I don't, I'm not worried about ever losing my feelings for him. But recently, the last few years, I didn't want to move anything because I did intend for it to be a museum. So, yes, my family was concerned that I'm living in a shrine, kind of like Miss Havisham. Uh-huh. And I explained uh, for many years now that the reason I leave it this way is because it is history. When I've seen, I saw um, Ernest Hemingway's home, Edgar Allan Poe's home, these people are heroes of mine and hunters. It is such a privilege to see the home the way they left it. And I would love for uh, people who loved Hunter's work to have the same experience. And I can provide that. And it's uh, I feel so blessed to have that ability to provide it. The logistics, I am working out, but it, it will happen. I have had tours already of, with some guests. I invite small groups of people by appointment only. And I've cooked breakfast at 2 p.m., just like I did for Hunter. We read Hunter's work. And it's been great. I want to turn just briefly to a difficult subject, and that's Hunter Thompson's passing. Um, He had Mm -hmm. some health problems, and he wrote a note, and then he was gone. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, he he shot himself. Yes. Um, Yes. Just to read a, a bit from the note he left, no more games, no more bombs, no more walking, no more fun, no more swimming. 67. That's 17 years past 50. 17 more that I needed or wanted boring. I am always mm-hmm. bitchy. No fun for anybody. 67. Did you feel angry about the way he went? Oh, absolutely. At times. Uh, it was kind of overwhelming anger. I don't know if it was at him necessarily. Maybe it was. Sometimes it's very confusing, my feelings about his suicide. Who else would the anger be at? Or what else? God, the universe, me, myself, uh, the, it's there's uh, it can certainly be confusing <laughs> to mm. use Hunter's words. He reminded me that when I do feel fear, just to remember that these are just moments of confusion. Yes, uh, that is a reality. I, I was mortified when I saw that note in Rolling Stone. I sent that to a group of friends. You know, Hunter wrote those kind of notes all the time. angry notes or depressed notes all his life, in addition to the very happy notes. He had been writing suicide notes since he was 22 years old. So he did have that tendency. We were all aware of it. But coming this close uh, and actually doing it was a a huge shock to me and many, many people. And there were people in the house at the time. Yes, uh, his son and the son's wife and Hunter's grandson Hunter, I don't think he realized they were in the other room. I don't think he would have done that. He was not thinking clearly. This was not something I think that he, I think any other time had circumstances been different, he would have simply gone to bed and woken up feeling better. That was the pattern for for so many, for a majority of his life. He did have dark spells. Usually he just went to bed and woke up and started again. This time he didn't. So that's maybe where my anger can come. I, I, it's majority of his has, has passed. Mm-hmm. Yes, the, it, it's a tragedy. It's not something that is something, something to be celebrated. It's nothing to celebrate that he lived the way he died. Therefore, you know, he's free. No, I think it was really a tragedy. And as family and friends and spouses, our job, if our loved ones are depressed and want to commit suicide, Unless it's a terminal illness, 
our job is to make them feel uh, needed and uh, alive. It sounds so like you, it sounds like you have some his, guilt. Do, do, it sounds like you have guilt. Of course I have guilt. Yes, of course I have guilt. Mm. Uh, and I live with that. Yes. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really privileged to be on your show, and I love to talk about Hunter. Anita Thompson, Hunter S. Thompson's widow, lives on Owl Farm near Aspen. She'd like to open it as a private museum or perhaps as a writer's retreat. That interview was recorded in June. There's more of it, including the story of Thompson's infamous funeral, in which his ashes were shot from a cannon, at cprnews.org. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from Colorado Public Radio.